Hi, friends, and welcome to the Good Work Podcast. I'm your host, Leah Leonard, and we are here to ask the question, what does good work mean to you? We'll explore the values that drive us, the tensions we wrestle with, and ultimately how we connect the dots between achievement and fulfillment in our lives. Sound heavy? Nah. Let's lighten up and dive in. All right, this is the recording for the Good Work Podcast, and our guest today is Mark Opal. So Mark Opal is a dedicated conservation finance consultant with a diverse background that includes private equity and renewable energy spaces. He is currently leading financial efforts for the Campaign for Nature, which aims to protect 30% of the planet by 2030 while upholding indigenous leadership and rights. Mark also served as a finance advisor to the Frankfurt Zoological Society and played a pivotal role in launching the Legacy Landscapes Fund, which secured over $300 million for biodiversity-focused initiatives. He's a Harvard-educated conservationist on the Nature Conservancy's Caribbean board and now lives in Boulder, Colorado and Guilford, New Hampshire with his wife, Robin. Mark Opal, thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Leah. It's great to talk to you. It's always great to talk to you. And I always have a good smile when we talk because I have actually known you since I was how old? Maybe eight years old? I don't know. We were watching uh, Little Mermaid videos together when (laughs) when we babysat you. So uh, it's been a while. I think eight years old sounds sounds about right. So needless to say, it's a treat to get to talk to somebody as an adult when you've known them since you were a kid and having watched your life unfold and your career take the twists and turns that it's taken to where you are now. I'm really looking forward to sharing your story with everybody today. Well, well, and the same goes for me. It's uh, And it's fun to be in the same town in Boulder. You're, you're a short bike ride away. Exactly. Well, so the theme of this podcast and some of the things that we've been exploring are, you know, what it means to do good work in the world, how we relate to that concept, and how as individuals with all of our diverse backgrounds, how we kind of connect the dots between achievement and fulfillment. And I know that that's something that has really probably guided some of the decisions that you've made along the way in your career, now working with the Campaign for Nature and and doing what you do. I wondered if you could share a little bit about how you got started in what you're doing now and kind of how you made that leap, if you could share that story with us, because you were really in a, a different world and you really made a big move. Yeah, it's been a crooked path, uh, which is kind of a, a recurring theme. So I started as, as you said, I've got 30 years of experience in the private sector, and, and a dozen of those were in pursuing renewable energy and energy conservation, which I felt were very much aligned when I was trying to pull off this trick of doing well and doing good. And uh, we did a lot of good in helping large institutions uh, save energy and in putting some renewable energy in place. And then for 18 years or so after that, I was in the private equity world, which is very agnostic and not neither aligned nor unaligned with my values, but purely maximizing returns on investing money in in companies. And I had an opportunity after I left that world and after 18 years of some you know interesting and compelling experience, but but one where I continue to kind of look and find and explore ways and in, in conversations with colleagues of trying to 
to pursue impact investing and pursue things that were more values aligned. And it was tricky. And, and ultimately, I wasn't very successful in doing that. So when American Capital was acquired back in 2016, I had a chance to step back and, and pursue something that I've loved for as long as I can remember, and that's nature and wild spaces. So I can tell you more about how that evolved, but that was an opportunity for me to step back and, and pursue that passion. And when you say that, you know, nature and wild spaces is something that you've always felt connected to. I remember when you lived in New York City, you also made the choice to live more rurally and commute in, I assume, because you wanted to feel more connected to nature, see some green space. Can you tell me more just about your connection to the natural world and how kind of where that came from? How far back do you remember feeling like you know, that was really where you wanted to be. We were crazy. I mean, I wouldn't recommend a 50-mile commute into New York City uh, to anyone, but that's what it took to live on our 10-acre farm and have a dozen uh, sheep and uh, chickens and donkeys and, and a big garden. But that was, yeah, a reflection of the way we wanted to live. And it started really from first memories that we've been coming to New Hampshire, talking now from our home in, in on a lake in, in New Hampshire, and spending time in nature from an early age, you know, connected me to this world, which we're all a part of. And sometimes we get disconnected from, especially when we don't have access to nature. So realizing that nature is not separate from us, but we are part, we are nature, was deep knowledge for me from early days. And uh, I saw an opportunity to maybe help give every give a larger group of people that that opportunity. If we protect a larger part of the planet, there's more opportunity for everyone to have that same experience. And is there is there a particular memory or time from when you were younger, way back before there were careers and choices to be made about how to balance doing well and doing good and all of these things that take up all of our brain space as adults. Is there a time or memory that you can recall where you felt just fully connected to nature? Anything that's that a, comes to that, mind, happy memory? That's such an interesting question. When I was in fifth grade, my parents cobbled the money together to take us to the U.S. Virgin Islands. And, and I can remember snorkeling in the coral reefs there and feeling like, I'll try not to get too woo-woo here, but feeling like I'm, I was a, a kind of witnessing presence. I was part of this, what was going on, it, and it wasn't separate from me. And that has stuck with me all these years, 40, 50 plus years. And uh, this connection of observing what was going on and feeling part of it, and that I'm almost... Again, without sounding too woo, get you know, bringing it into being by being this witnessing presence. So that's a memory that that stuck, and is I remember is you know as, as I'm in nature now. Yeah, I was curious if there was equally on the other side a time that you can remember that you can kind of track, thinking, "Wow, I feel really disconnected from that feeling that you had when you were snorkeling." Was there a turning point ever for you where you? where you felt really disconnected from that sense of, again, with the woo, but I'm fine with it, uh, <laughs> that sense of of oneness and kind of communing with nature anytime you can recall. Well, I, I think uh, I think it's hard. New York City's got this great place called Central Park, right? And it was genius to have preserved that. And it allows people in, in New York City to get that experience 
when they spend time in the park. But, you know, I worked in Midtown for years and years and, well, you walk the streets and uh, there's everything created by people, right? Everything's created by the mind and there's no way to escape it. The words are all there. The lights are there. Buildings are there. So uh, I felt disconnected a lot when I when I was in, in Midtown Manhattan. And and I think mm-hmm. cities, you know, have that downside. The, the, the upside, of course, is the connection with this massive group of people. But in the natural world, it's it's all completely mind made. Big difference. So fast forwarding to now and the work that you do now, how did you ultimately decide that when you made this leap to working with Campaign for Nature and you found a way, and I have to credit you with really being the one that encouraged me to look into what effective altruism was all about, but this concept of you know 80,000 hours and using the time that we spend in our work lives to you know, make the difference that we're meant to make. What process did you follow to make that decision? And how did you know that that was the next right thing for you? So I I was blessed with an opportunity to, to be able to take a little time and have a couple of hundred conversations with people uh, doing a whole variety of things to, and to try to thread the needle of finding something where that aligned with my values, where I could take on work that I would hope would make the world a better place. And at the same time, find a group of people where I'm bringing something to the table that's helpful and where I can take everything I've learned and all my experience and be able to apply it and add something to a team that maybe missing. So it was trying to bring together those two things, what's going to align with my values. And and there are lots of places where I could have gone where I said, oh, yeah, I I love that work. I totally would love to be helpful in that work. But then you do have to answer the question of, okay, what role can I fill here? Uh, How can Mm -hmm. I be helpful? And finance skills are helpful in some places and and not in others. I'll never be a marine biologist uh, as much as I love scuba diving. I can't be helpful there, but maybe I can be helpful in thinking about how to fund a marine protected area. And then I think the third thing was after talking to a bunch of people, no matter what work you're doing, you have to enjoy the people that you're working with. So finding a team of people that is highly functioning and that you enjoy kind of showing up, whether it used to be in the office, now showing up over Zoom is important. And I think that's the challenge is is to go out and try to accomplish those three things, which I was lucky enough to do, but it was a crooked road. And it took 18 months for me to Mm. figure that out. And I did the work. I think it doesn't happen without doing the work, but it also ultimately kind of will happen organically where I, I felt like, yeah, I had to put the time in, but it still happened in a way that was out of my control. Do you think you had a clear sense when you started that 18 month windy road of what we might call your why, right? The reason behind why you wanted to go and do something different. Did you start that process having a clear why, knowing that you wanted to find something that was more values aligned? Or did that evolve over time in that Uh, period? I was pretty clear. This is the maybe the last chapter of my working career. So I wanted to find something that was value aligned. It wasn't clear what that would be. And I explored a whole bunch of different roads, but I wanted something that I felt had purpose and where I woke up saying this aligns with my values. This is something that I'm that I want to dedicate my time to and not make and, you know, let's be honest, like not have money being the primary driver of what I chose to do. And what does it mean to you to do good work? You've already kind of 
touched on it. You've said the words values aligned a lot of times, but when, when you hear the phrase good work and like good work, Mark, (laughs) what does that mean to you? I guess it's trying to make the world a little bit better place. And another way of saying it is maybe, you know, is there a way to reduce the suffering in this world? How can you pursue a path yourself or with an organization or with it, some kind of effort that is going to reduce suffering uh, mm. as, as an expression of, you know, of compassion? Well, shifting gears a little bit, just for those that are curious and may not be as familiar with what the Campaign for Nature does, can you tell us a little bit more about um, what you all are working on right now and just get us more acquainted with the Campaign for Nature? So we created this campaign out of whole cloth in 2018 to pursue the goal of the world adopting the goal of protecting 30% of the planet by 2030, which the science is clear that that's a bare minimum if we want to maintain the biodiversity and the ecosystem services that are being degraded and that are necessary to support all of life. And by the way, all of our economies as well. Mm -hmm. E.O. Wilson wrote a famous book called Half Earth that advocates for protecting half the earth. We view the 30% protection as a stepping stone to ultimately achieving E.O. Wilson's vision of half the earth under protection. So I joined this group of campaigners. I'm not a campaigner. I'm a, you know, my background's in in finance. and um, I joined this group of folks who were, you know, when we created this campaign and I was the finance lead on this campaign. And ultimately, we were successful in probably the most important meeting that you've never probably never heard of called the Convention on Biological Diversity, you know, COP15 in that happened in Montreal, where every other year there is a, a convention on nature, biodiversity and nature kind of being the, the same trying to describe the same thing that mm-hmm. is a sister convention to the climate convention that you, that most people have have heard of and that meets every year but in montreal this uh conference of the parties met in um, montreal in december and adopted this goal and we were happy to have the world you know respond in that way and now 190 countries have agreed to protect 30 percent of the planet by 2030. we're now on to our next phase of helping, trying to be helpful in implementing that goal since it's a heavy lift. Right now, about 16% or so of the land and eight or so percent of the ocean is protected. So we've got a long way to go. We've got effectively double the amount of land under protection and, and more than triple the amount of ocean that's under protection. So we're trying to be helpful in doing that. And we're trying also to hold countries accountable for the financial commitments that they've made in addition to their commitment to 30, so-called 30 by 30, yeah. um, but to the financial commitments they've made. So that's what we're working on now. Big job. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's daunting because while it's much easier to make promises than it is to, <laughs> to, to uphold them. And you know there have been a series of broken promises and particularly mm. around finance of commitments that the global North has made have been broken in supporting financially the, the global South and meeting its climate goals. And many of the economic, the short-term economic forces are pushing against, or we are pushing against them and trying to maintain a long-term focus on the importance of nature and of course, mitigating climate change in order to continue to support a, you know, a sustainable planet. I mean, I think a lot of folks, you know, are going to feel very resonant with wanting to protect our planet and climate change and protecting, you know, our biodiversity being something that a lot of us are passionate about. Do you ever feel like the problem is so vast and large that it feels 
overwhelming or do you find that your mind goes in that direction ever working on something as epic as safeguarding our planet every day every day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah a, lo- a yeah. lot because you can't read the popular press which has done a much better job of covering both climate and age of crisis over the last few years than they had in the past or all of the uh, the media that is and press and and writers that are covering this for people who are following it closely you can't read the headlines without being concerned and there's a lot of burnout in our business there's a lot of folks who've been at it for a long time and it is it's hard it's hard work and it can be discouraging when there are such powerful forces aligned against you in the form of the fossil fuel industry and the money that they are able to spend on disinformation and on buying politicians, frankly. And as well as when you want to try to change the rules to protect nature, you often have entrenched interests that want to continue business as usual, which many of whom are often profiting at the expense of the greater good or the global commons and privatizing things that are global assets or shared common assets. So those forces are out there. They are strong. Working against them takes a lot of work. And it's work we're we're trying to do with a small team and a shoestring budget. But there are philanthropists out there that want to support this work. We need more, but Mm -hmm. they are out there and they're helping to support our work. We're supported by a handful of foundations that think this work is important. I have a couple follow-up questions because this is super interesting and I think really important to acknowledge that when the nature of your work, pun intended, is so vast and you can suffer from, you know, what I've heard called compassion fatigue, where you are doing work that is values aligned and you start to think, I'm only one person. Is this actually making a difference? You know, and you kind of circle back around to that why and you feel like, is this working? And are we getting anywhere with this? What do you do to take care of yourself? What does your team do to be able to kind of keep perspective and avoid the burnout and be able to keep going? What do you do? Yeah, it's such a great question. Uh, Humor helps. It helps not to take ourselves too seriously. Uh, Do you like my nature, my nature pun? The nature of your work? (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Thank Um, you very much. I'll be here all week. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. When I think working with a group of people who can support each other is helpful, where, you know, we have a an incredible team of people that has come together around this, but we all feel passionately, but we all don't take ourselves too seriously. And the first organization I've worked with that has no ego involved and, and none of us are, are trying to kind of crawl over the other to get somewhere. We're all just trying to be helpful. We're all just trying to do the best we can on this problem that we think is important that we all share you know, a commitment to and have all made certain sacrifices and in many cases, financial sacrifices to pursue and all and sacrifices of travel. You know, my colleague just, you know, is on his way to Peru and from there around the world and his way away from home for a long time because our, our work is global. So that's one way we cope. Um, taking your work seriously, but not taking yourselves too seriously. Yeah. Yeah. And kicking the ego to the curb. I heard as well. Yeah, absolutely. Those help. Anything that you would recommend? Let's say there's someone out there who is thinking, yeah, you know, I kind of relate to this and I have made sacrifices or I am stressed because for someone out there who is feeling the stress of sacrificing their, maybe their personal 
well-being or their personal financial well-being and security in order to pursue, you know, something that is benefiting the greater good, what advice would you give them? Maybe yeah. someone who's earlier in their career and, you know, has certain personal goals, but also wants to balance that with doing what they consider good work. So in your earlier questions, I was struggling to remember, and now I'm I'm remembering what I, I did want to share. When when we were doing the research for the Legacy Landscapes Fund and thinking about who might fund it, we looked at the impact that Bill Gates, uh, Bill and Melinda Gates have and the Gates Foundation have had on public health. And if you look at it, it's incredible the leverage that they got with their philanthropy and what they've been able to do to increase funding for for global health. And within that, I said, well, let's look at the giving pledge that, you know, a number of people have signed on to. And and when you sign on, many people, they're asked to write a letter and many people do. So I went back and I read every letter that uh, these folks wrote who had signed on to the giving pledge. And one that struck me was from Ted Turner, who was quoting a conversation he had with Jacques Cousteau in his letter and talking about this issue of, aren't these problems so big? Don't you get discouraged? And how do you keep going? And Jacques Cousteau, of course, is a conservation who inspired many of us, a conservationist and many other things. But he, he was an inspiration for so many of us. And, Jacques, and, and he quotes Jacques Cousteau's response was, and so I'm paraphrasing, but indeed, we may not be successful, but what is a good man, person, but what is a good man to do but keep trying until the very end? And I think that's what also keeps us going in the face of long odds and challenging circumstances. It's like, you got to try, right? We're all, we only have so much time on this earth. And uh, one of my favorite filmmakers, Luis de Hoyos, who, who made The Cove and uh, Racing Extinction, great films, by the way, if you're on this topic. But Luis says, you're either an activist or an inactivist. And in a way, we all keep going because we want to be activists. We want to do, we want to try. Bill McKibben says the same thing in his, if you follow him at all and talking about climate and how hard it is. And he's been despairing lately in his newsletters about the latest news, whether it's the fires in Maui that are happening, you know, mm. now or all the latest headlines. And, and he's very much, I think, of that same philosophy of, of we got to keep at it. Don't give up. Yeah. And do what you can do. And yep. what you can do is enough. And hopefully all of us collectively that will add up. And you never know. Like You can't really know the outcomes of your, your actions. You have to just do the best you can. I think that's a really tricky thing for a lot of us to grapple with is not being able to see the fruits of your labor, not being well, able to actually see, measure, have it be tangible to have the results of your best attempt at good work be absolutely uncertain. I think a lot of us have a hard time with that. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I spent my career with numbers and you get what you measure and, and you need to be able to measure everything, right? Uh, John Doerr and his book I've shared with many people in the conservation space who often are guilty of not measuring their outcomes and feeling, and this is another, you know, kind of cautionary tale. When you feel like you're doing God's work, you're doing good work, sometimes you can fall into the trap of not really measuring the impact you're having. So that's kind of the flip side of th this question. But uh, in many ways, it's a leap of faith. But I think it's important to keep coming back and, and asking yourself the question of, is this working? Mm -hmm. and, you know, am, am I in the right 
place? And are there other opportunities to be more effective? It's tricky. And I don't think the answers are, it's a crooked road. Uh, I don't think, <laughs> I think that's going to be the title. That's yeah. like going to be the title for your you, episode. You, um, my, it's a crooked one road. Of my, one of my, one of my favorite singer songwriters is a guy named Daryl Scott. And he, and he wrote a, an album and, and a song called a crooked road. And uh, the lyrics there are very apropos. <laughs> Thank you. I have lots of notes of books to find, movies to find, and uh, songs to listen to after talking to you. It's awesome. Oh, I had something on the tip of my tongue. Oh, yeah. I was just going to share that, you know, I, I ask some of these questions because these are things that I struggle with all the time. And I certainly, you know, in my experience with Kisimani School, have been, you know, guilty of not measuring along the way and in retrospect wishing that i had but being so caught up in the figuring out of it all that i just didn't have the capacity to put down you know measuring sticks when we were really in the early years just trying to see because i didn't know if it was going to work mm-hmm. <laughs> and sometimes if i had known right that it was all going to work out and we would have the success story that we have now man, I would have been measuring every every single thing. Uh-huh. That's the kind of tricky tension is, I guess, what I could have done differently is assume that it was all going to work out, even if I had no idea how, and measure. Yeah. <laughs> measure from the beginning, get the numbers so that we could, you know, have the data. And that's definitely been a, a learning curve for me, for sure. Yeah. And I think, you know, especially if you want to attract funding, if you want to attract people who are going to commit dollars to supporting your efforts, having the metrics and, and having the, the measured outcomes helps. Not all philanthropists apply the same rigor to their philanthropy that they do to the way they made money. We found sometimes it's very emotionally driven, but on balance, you want to try to measure as best you can the, the outcomes and be willing to change course if things aren't working, to be willing to say, okay, you know, we're not getting the outcomes based on this. And that's a lot of what the, you know, effective altruism, you know, is about. And going back to this, don't let your idea that you're doing God's work or that you're doing good work blind you to trying to be accountable for the outcome of that work and measuring how you're doing along the way. Yeah, I couldn't agree more because it's really important. And I think it. a lot of us are conscious of the fact that sometimes, you know, we can, whether you're in well-intentioned or not, sometimes helping can cause harm along the way. And we certainly don't want to do that. So it's interesting how sometimes the feeling aspect of how we decide what kind of work we want to do is so caught up in how it makes us feel. And that's true. And I think that's a really, that's a true thing, that connection that we feel and that I'm going to just call it that snorkeling moment, that sense of feeling kind of drives what we decide to do in terms of our good work. But at the same time, it can also cloud our judgment, unintentionally cause harm, and you know, end up with outcomes that we didn't intend. So figuring uh, out how to balance those two. Any I'm curious if you have any thoughts or advice. Nodding that. along to all that, Lee. I, I totally agree. And I don't think I have I, I don't think I have a lot to add. It is a is a tension and it and I think we have to be comfortable with nuance 
and comfortable with being uncomfortable. I think I've been uncomfortable in many situations, not because of doing something that may not be in line with my values or unethical, but but just being in unfamiliar territory and being willing to be to put yourself out there and be uncomfortable in in that space, I think goes with trying something new or taking a fork in the road or in your career path. You mentioned that Campaign for Nature is always looking for more more philanthropists. Uh, <laughs> and I'm just curious. And you also mentioned that that there are traditional models of philanthropy and there are newer models and there are folks that are trying to figure out how to be philanthropists uh, with integrity. And if you had to describe the ideal philanthropist for the Campaign for Nature, who would that be? We were funded almost in our early days, almost exclusively by the Weiss Foundation, W-Y-S-S. It's not a household name, but a Swiss billionaire who wrote an op-ed in New York Times in 2018 that said, why I'm giving a billion dollars to save the planet. And and a very small fraction of that was dedicated to campaign for nature uh, efforts. Mm -hmm. But I think that that foundation, his foundation, views our efforts as, as one of its real success stories. Since then, other foundations have joined and supported us, including the Moore Foundation and the Bezos Foundation. And I'm not here making a pitch. We don't take individual donations. You know, it's the concentrated effort and anyone who wanted to support our work. You can learn more about us just by going to campaignfornature.org. And uh, anyone who wanted to, to support us, you know, I want to, you know, partner with folks who who share our, our vision. And really our focus now is trying to have private philanthropists help us leverage more public money for conservation, because that's where the bulk of the money has historically come from and where it's got to come from uh, in the future. Governments have to fund conservation like it's, and, and nature like it's the asset that it is, and they need to change policies to make the private sector more sustainable. And, you know, we're looking for the funders out there who are who commit to that and, and understand that it's a long-term proposition. This is we're not changing the world in a few months or a year or, or even a few years. This is this is a long-term effort. Generational work. It is. I, much as we're facing a ticking clock in climate change, facing a ticking clock in biodiversity loss, you know, losing multiple soccer pitches worth of rainforest every second. So it's an urgent problem, but we are overcoming those forces we talked about earlier. That takes time and political will that we have to help muster and that takes time. You said, well, in order to do the kind of work that you're doing, there isn't a certain amount of privilege that you are springboarding off of in order to do it. Can you just reiterate kind of what you just said? Because that was, I think. The decision making is different depending on what stage of life you're in. And I'm operating from a place of privilege. No doubt. I'm in the last chapter of my career. I've had the opportunity to have enough financial security where I don't have to have take a job that is going to maximize my income. I still need some income, but I don't need to maximize it the way I was trying to do when I was younger. We have the privilege of being later in life with girls that are out of college and, and out of the house and and a willingness on my wife and my part to to not have money be the primary thing that I'm trying to pursue in this right. chapter of my life. And that's a place of privilege. For a young person, I think it's, you know, it's much more challenging when you've got, whether it's buying a house or buying a car or having a kid or putting your kids through college, like we all have to make our own decisions and it's not easy. And I think 
You know, there's some interesting insight into that through the effective altruism movement mm-hmm. about how to maximize your impact and an argument that maybe you want to go be a hedge fund manager and make a mm-hmm. bunch of money and then give a bunch of it away. Can you do more good doing that than you can if you went and worked for an NGO? Because you go and work for a, you know, for a nonprofit and you're not going to make as much money, pure and simple, as, as you do in, in the private sector. And so you find a lot of people who were there because they believe in it and have made that decision. But I talk to people who struggle with it and say, oh, geez, it can be hard to look at what other people are making mm-hmm. and your perceived value of what they may be contributing to society or negatively impacting the way they're perhaps negatively right. impacting society and, and reconcile that. That can be people in, in the NGO world will talk in private and maybe among friends about it, but maybe not in the open. It's maybe a bad look in the open, but it's there. Yeah. And I think it's important to put it out there because I absolutely struggled with that myself where I thought I want to just do the work that I love. Right. I was always told, do what you love and the money will follow. And then I was like, well, money's not following. So I can do what I love to do or that I things I really care about. But I'm starting to feel constrained and confined and resentful because I'm so stressed financially that I'm not able to actually enjoy this work because I'm so caught up thinking about things that are much lower on, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So I think what I hear you saying is like, we have a certain amount of responsibility when you get your needs met. And if you do not have your own needs met, no one is... I think you just said, you know, you wouldn't recommend or you wouldn't ask a younger person to... No. sacrifice all of that to kind of skip ahead in going up that ladder of meeting their own needs. But that is something that they struggle with. Absolutely. And like in my part of the world in conservation, you know, you have PhDs who are clawing, you know, all, all over each other to take jobs that they're way overqualified for that don't then hardly pay anything. Um, because there's so little money in it and so many people who believe so strongly in it. So it's a very difficult place. And our daughter tried to pursue it and ran into the same thing you did, which is, I can't be happy if I can't put food on the table. And no one should be expected to, and you shouldn't expect yourself. I think you can think of your career and your life as as an unfolding story, as a process, as an evolution that where I've had the benefit of being able to uh, transition and and do the work I'm doing that I care about now, but I couldn't have done this when I was 30 years old. So it is a place of privilege. And and I guess the only thing I'd say is a lot of people get on that wheel and then can't get off or get on the treadmill and can't get off because everybody, we're all Mm -hmm. pretty good at building lifestyles, $1 more than we make. And so if you get stuck there, or if you start maybe even more fundamentally measuring your worth, Mm. by how much money you make. It's hard to get out. Think about that. Like Keep that in the back of your, in your mind because I know so many people who are one of those two things or both. Either they need the money to maintain a lifestyle that they've built up of things they don't need, or they're like, who will I be? Who mm-hmm. am I if I'm not making X dollars, fill in the blank? And if I have to take a zero off that number, you know, who am mm-hmm. I? How am I going to be perceived, right? How what are people, what's my family going to think? What, what are my friends going to think? What are my former colleagues going to think, you know, that have I failed? You know, have I gone off the reservation? Like We start to identify our value and our perceived sense of self-worth with how much we're quote unquote worth. Ab- and those ab- types of worth are different things. Ab- 
Absolutely. And in a way, it's the easiest thing to do is like, okay, you know, measuring my worth is really hard. So I'm going to measure it by how much money I make or how much money I have in the bank. And, and on the one hand, you can't dismiss that because we've all got to put food on the table and take care of our families. On the other hand, if you start to identify with that, that's a problem that goes back to the ancient philosophers and the ancient spiritual teaching of warning against identification. And, and if there's somebody out there that might be listening to this thinking, oh dear, I think that's me. What would you say to them and what advice would you give to them? I think so that's that's awesome. That's awesome. That's the first step is recognition. There you go. Well, Mark Opal, thank you for sharing all of your insights and inspiration and perspective on the Good Work podcast series. It's been a pleasure talking well, to you as thanks. always. As always. It's great talking to you again, Lee. And thank you for all your work in uh, in pursuing this and putting these ideas out, out into the world. I think it's great. Keep up thanks, the good work. Mark. Thank you. Thanks for listening, friends. I'd love for you to join this conversation and hear your perspective too. To connect with us, head over to leahleonard.me and way to go. Good work. Good work.